Good morning, Trinity Church. Happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. Hey, my name is Doug, and I am the interim pastor here at Trinity during this transition time, and it is such a joy to begin the Christmas season with you. I get so excited about this time of year and and learning about uh, Jesus Christ and the amazing incarnation. So today as we kick off our Christ of Christmas series, or we might be saying Christ of Christ Mass, or Christ of Christ Mass series, uh, let me ask you a question. So if uh, someone were to ask you to explain God, what would you say? In fact, I'd like to have you take just a second and think about that. Maybe you would turn to somebody next to you and say, well, if I were going to explain God, I think what I would say is at least this. So think about it for a second. I'm going to give you just a little bit of time. How would you explain God? Because this is the season when God explains himself to us. Do a neighbor nudge. What would you say? What's one thing that you would give someone else to explain God? And while you do, I'm going to get a drink. Don't you love starting off with a small question? (laughs) Something simple. Danny Dutton was asked that question by his Sunday school teacher. Danny was in the third grade, lives in Chula Vista. And his teacher at this time of year just wanted them to think more deeply about God. And so she said, I want you to think about it this week and just write out a couple of paragraphs on how would you explain God. And so I brought his description for us this morning. I think it's a good place for us to start this series on the Christ of Christmas. Here's what Danny wrote. Remember, this is is an eight-year-old boy, third grade. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die. So there'll be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think that's because they're smaller and easier to make. And that way he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He leaves that to moms and dads. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. God doesn't have the time to listen to radio or TV because of this. But he hears everything. There must be a lot of noise in his ears because he's thought of a way to turn it off. God sees everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy, so you shouldn't waste his time going, uh, by going over your mom and dad's head, asking for something they said you couldn't have. <laughs> Jesus is God's son. He used to do all the hard work, like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach people who didn't want to learn about God. And, They finally got tired of him preaching to him, and they crucified him. But he was good and kind like his father. And he told his father that they didn't know what they were doing and to forgive them, and God said, okay. His dad appreciated everything he had done and all his hard work on earth, so he told them, you don't have to go out on the road anymore. You can stay in heaven. And he did. And now he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and seeing things that are important for God to take care of and and of which ones he can take care of himself without having to bother his dad, and kind of like a secretary, only more important. You can pray anytime you want, and they're sure to hear you because they got it all worked out, so one of them is on duty all the time. (laughs) 
Not too bad for an eight-year-old boy, would you say? Yeah, it's true. We could try to refine it a little bit and you know, brush it up, make it better. But uh, what Danny was given the task of doing, so also was Gabriel, the angel of God. God said to him one day, Gabriel, I need you to tell people about Jesus, who he's going to be, what he's going to be like. You need to go talk to Mary and Joseph and give them a handle on this baby that they're going to have. And, uh, and so he does. He comes down to earth, and we're going to look at these two passages this morning on which we're basing this sermon series. And he says to him, hey, folks, you're going to have a baby uh, who's going to be God in the flesh. So let me tell you a little bit about him, what to expect, what he'll be like. And he proceeded to give them four specific descriptions about their baby boy. And each one was a huge burst of colorful 4th of July fireworks in their minds. They had their world rocked and shocked by Gabriel's comments. And I think that's important for us to hear at Christmas because the story has become very familiar, hasn't it? Over the years, we, we know how to celebrate Christmas. We think about who Christ is. And, and yet, as Gabriel talks to them about who this child would be. It would be like a doctor saying to a, an expectant mom in his office, hey, you're going to have a baby, and uh, it's going to be a baby boy that one day will discover the cure to both COVID and cancer. He's going to be a baby that will end the war in the Ukraine and bring peace to the Middle East. He's going to be a baby child that will successfully and permanently remove all pollutants from all of the oceans and air. He's going to be a baby that will remove all human greed and lust and hatred and anger and brokenness. And what would this young mom say to the doctor? If you were her, what would you say when the doctor tells you this? First of all, you say, I think you're a bit of a, a croc, doc. Uh, how can you know that? What would the child's DNA be to be this kind of child? And yet, that's exactly the sense that Gabriel gives to Mary and Joseph. This description of the Christ child was so out of this world, this miracle worker, this powerfully impactful person, this universally known individual. How do they handle that? So I'd like to have you take a look with me. We'll put it up on the screen. But in Luke's gospel, Gabriel speaks to Mary, and he gives her three of these descriptors. And if you're taking notes this morning, I would love to have you write them down because we're going to focus on one of them this morning, the other three throughout the next uh, four weeks. But it says in Luke 1, 26 through 38, in the sixth month, and that's of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy, so her, um, her relative, Elizabeth, was also having a baby. John the Baptist was on his way. But in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and trying to discern what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Hey, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
And Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So what did you notice in that passage about the descriptors of this baby that is going to come? They're pretty amazing. First of all, and and probably most simply, Gabriel says, Mary, your child is going to be a, a human child. He's going to be a baby boy and he's going to be your son. And so the first title we notice is that Jesus is the son of man. He's, he's a human being, just like all of us, except a little different, and yet fully human. Secondly, he's going to be the son of the Most High and sit on David's throne. He is going to be the king of kings. His reign will never end. And third, he's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and known as the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. So Mary's pondering these things in her heart. And she's wondering, wow, what kind of DNA does this kid have to do all of these things? And then in Matthew's gospel, Gabriel appears to Joseph, and he adds one more qualifier to this child to be born. You notice in Matthew 1, 18 through 25, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, refused to divorce or resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So this fourth description is that he will be God's solution for all of our world's sin and brokenness. He will be the savior of the world. So over the next four weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into these four descriptions as we think about the Christ of Christmas, and we're going to rediscover for ourselves this child born in Bethlehem as the Son of Man, King of Kings, Son of God, and Savior of all the world. So for this morning, let's take a look at Jesus as the Son of Man. Interestingly, this was one of Jesus' favorite terms or, or phrases for himself. 78 times in the gospel, he called himself the Son of Man. It was his favorite descriptor. All these other titles were true of him, but when he described himself, he often said, the Son of Man does this. The Son of Man has this to say. So, as we think about that, because it is so significant to him, what did Jesus want us to hear? What does he want us to think? Why should that be important to us? 
It was obviously significant for him. Well, let's take a look. We're not going to look at all 78 of those uh, passages this morning. You can rest easy. We're just looking at three of them. But in there, we're going to find three key thoughts as to what that should mean for us. So the first one is simply this. Jesus called himself the Son of Man to give us fresh hope. To give us fresh hope. And we find that embedded in Luke 19, 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, you can open up to Luke 19, 1 through 10. We're going to have a fair number of scriptures we're going to put up on the screen this morning, but don't worry. We're still going to be done on time. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Now, chief tax collectors did not have a booth. They had at least 10 other tax collectors under them who were collecting all the taxes, but they got all of the wealth from all of these tax collectors. And it says he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. The average uh, Jewish individual at that time was about five foot two, maybe five foot three. You can imagine, this is a fairly short individual. He can't see over the crowd. Nobody's going to let him get to the front. And so he runs on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see uh, Jesus, who was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looks up, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. And they said, he's going to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Hey, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Do you think there's a change of heart going on here? Absolutely. And if I have defrauded anyone, is there any question about that? Of anything, I will restore it fourfold. He's actually going beyond the Old Testament requirement here. When you stole something, returning it, you had to actually return more. And he returns it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, a true son who has faith in God. And then notice verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Have you ever, ever lost something really important? Your phone? Your laptop? I have lost both of those. <laughs> Thankfully, they were retrieved. Your keys, your wallet, a, a child. We lost my oldest daughter uh, once and, at, at a Target, and it was like, what are we going to do? We found her, thank God. Your homework assignment, a family pet. If you've ever lost something, what do you do besides panicking? You go back to the last place you saw it, right? You go back to where you think you might have lost it. And what I love about Jesus is that he came looking for us, seeking us in the very place in which we had been lost, this world. He comes to this world, and he begins to look for people who need hope. And Zacchaeus is one of those individuals. Zacchaeus needed fresh hope. Now, he was keenly interested in Jesus. He had heard the stories. He had seen the friendships forged. He had seen sinners who were loved by this individual. And he wanted in on that. 
But he also knew the, the odds were razor thin of his ever seeing Jesus, let alone talking with Jesus or even getting to know Jesus. And so because of his diminutive size, his occupation as chief tax collector, and his resentful neighbors who would obviously want to prevent that, he climbs the sycamore tree, which is full of leaves, so the odds of even seeing Jesus, potentially glimpsing him, are very low. It was around 43%, if you like stats. Less than half. But he throws caution to the wind, and he takes to the branches. And as Jesus passes by that very spot, he intentionally stops, and he looks up, and he says to Zacchaeus, get down here, bro. Today, lunch is on you. And I love how Zacchaeus just felt this deep joy. His heart was touched. He was being pursued. He was being desired. He was being sought after. Nobody else did that. Whenever he walked the streets of Jericho, everybody pivoted and went the other direction. He had no friends. He had no relationships that were satisfying. So this was a, a totally new feeling for him, that somebody actually cared about him. And he was having lunch with him. Who cared if he was providing the lunch himself at his own home? He wanted to know Jesus. And folks, I think that is the story of every individual in our world today who needs to be found by God. And it's not that, yes, we're all lost. That is true. But we weren't lost by God. We were lost from God as we departed away from him. Isaiah 53, 6 affirms that, doesn't it? It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to, our, to his own way. Have you ever felt that sense of lostness? I mean, truly, have you ever been lost and felt like you had no hope? I remember growing up in Escondido, my family had a huge avocado grove right across the street, hundreds and hundreds of avocado trees. And to the right of us uphill, there was a huge orange grove, hundreds and hundreds of trees, acres of trees. And so for my brothers and I, it was a great place to get lost. Well, not horribly, but just go have fun and climb around and explore. And I remember one particular day, I was in this orange grove, and I was by myself exploring around, and I found this huge old water reservoir, big round concrete structure thrust down into the ground. It was at the top about waist high, and the old wooden roof was long gone. It had long ago stopped being used. And I, I walked over to it, and I looked down inside, and there inside of this huge 10-foot by 10-foot circle was soft green grass. It's like, wow, this is like a really special place. And then I noticed something very interesting. There was a skeleton down there of a rabbit that had been hopping along happily and over the reservoir and boom, all the way to the bottom, 10 feet down. And I thought, now that would be something to bring home. So without thinking either, ever any further, I jumped right in after the rabbit. And I got that white skeleton, you know, out of the grass, and then I looked up. Oh, no. I suddenly realized why he had not gotten out. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be fun. The next guy by here in like 20 years is going to find two skeletons down here. And so being a young preteen, I started yelling. But this was a big enough grove. The only thing shouting back was silence. And I shouted and shouted, seemed like for hours, and realized as the sun was starting to go down, I wasn't getting out. And I figured with six kids, my mom would probably not even miss me, right? 
That often happened at church. You get left behind. Everybody went home. So I began to really, I began to pray and give up hope. What am I going to do? I can't get out of here. There's no way out of this concrete reservoir. And then I heard footsteps. It was one of my brothers who, to this day, I don't know why he was out there. And I began yelling, hey, hey, I'm down here. Help me. And he comes over and he looks down. He goes, what are you doing down there? I said, I found the skeleton of a rabbit. He goes, ooh, that is interesting. Can you get me out of here? Well, give me the skeleton and I'll help you out. <laughs> Brothers, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure, you can have it. So we had the formalities exchanged. He found an old um, uh, ladder that had been abandoned from picking oranges. You know, they narrow closer to the top, and they've got the metal and then the wooden rungs, and it was all worn out, and he kind of thrust it down there, and I'm clamoring up it, and I felt this huge relief of, oh, I'm saved. You ever felt that feeling? We should, because as humanity... We have been distanced from God by our sins. And we, as humanity, have been lost. And the Word of God says Jesus came to seek and to save humanity. And Zacchaeus is just one of these individuals who experienced that moment, uh, that incredible sense of I've been found, I've been loved, I've been helped. And everyone who is distanced from God and from other people at times needs this sense of hope. We need to know that someone loves us and someone cares about us and someone is there to rescue us from our wrong choices, from the sins of our lives. And Jesus did this. He walked in our Nikes. He experienced life from our perspective. He underwent the same temptations and fatigue and stresses and struggles that we all face. And... He tells us about God the Father, inviting us to come back home. Bill Bright, who's been involved with Christian ministry over the years, he's with the Lord now, but he wrote a book called God, Discover His Character. And he describes this amazing moment of God reaching out to humanity. And I like the way he writes it. He says, is it possible for a mere human, less than a tiny speck on a pebble of a planet in the midst of a vast Milky Way galaxy of 200 billion stars and an expansive universe of 100 billion other galaxies just as huge. Is it really possible to know the great God who created everything? We might compare our quest to find God to the story of a microscopic mite that lived on a flea on a little dog in a small yard of a humble home. This house is on the outskirts of New York City, many miles from the palatial dwelling of Bill Gates, the world's, at that time, richest man. In might miles, the distance from the mite to Bill's house seemed like light years. And this miniature mite decided that the most important work he could ever do was to write a book about that well-known business mogul. Nuts. Crazy. And after reflecting on his book for a long time, the frustrated mite abandoned his project and went back to living out his life as a mite mite. He just didn't know what to write. He had a deep desire, but none of his words seemed adequate to describe such an incredibly great person and business genius. How could you and I, living in this amazing, incredible world, galaxies, universes, ever hope 
to know God and experience a relationship with him. And we can't unless he comes to us. And that's why this message of uh, Christmas time of God seeking us through his son is so important. He came into our small home on the outskirts of his vast universe. He stepped into our yard. He located the dog. He found the flea and became a mite like us. Let that sink in for a minute. The creator of all things was willing to become a mite on the back of a flea, on the back of a dog, in a small yard, in a small house. Because he loved us. And he wanted us to find hope. To be sought and saved. Would you take a minute and prayerfully reflect on your sense of hope right now? Just bow your head for a moment, if you would. Do you need hope? What do you have your hope set on this morning? What gives you that sense of deliverance? That sense of uplift of spirit? The joy that Zacchaeus felt? What is it that gives that to you? And is it connecting yourself with the God of all creation? Is this where you're finding your hope here at Christmas? Because this is what God would like to do for you. Take just a second and thank God for the hope of God reaching out to you to seek you and to save you. Father, we thank you that you loved us that much. In Jesus' name, amen. What a joy it is to be certain that God deeply feels and clearly understands everything we're going through. Every moment of every day, he understands it. He became like one of us to give us a life, to see life from our point of view and and conquer the very things that we struggle with. So Jesus came as the Son of Man to give us hope. But secondly, he came to give us fresh help. Hope and help. Matthew 20 is one of those moments, again, where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And it's a very different setting. It's a mom coming to him and wanting something for her two sons, the sons of Zebedee. So she shows up before Jesus. She kneels in front of him, and and she says to him, I have something to ask you. He says, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. You hear what she's asking for? She's reaching for the top rung of the ladder for her boys. Forget the doctor. Forget the lawyer. I want them to be co-regents with you over every other person who will ever live in any place or time. Would you mind giving that to them? And Jesus answers her, and he says, "Uh, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him blithely, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And he says to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. 
And when the ten, the other disciples, heard this, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why? Well, they probably wanted the same thing for themselves, to have that status, that privilege. But Jesus calls to them, he says, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it's, it's not to be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This mom had very unrealistic expectations for her sons. But Jesus' response exposes the ignorance that she's operating out of, but also the true purposes and principles of his kingdom. And he says, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you have to be a servant of all, because that's what the Son of Man is. He came to serve and to help. And I think it's true that to be an effective servant, you have to be present and responsive to the needs of those that you would serve. Lisa and I were driving back from Escondido uh, a couple months ago, and uh, we had stayed a little longer than we had thought we would, so it was getting closer to dinner time. We're heading up to Ukaipa, and we're passing through um, Temecula. And so we decided, might as well stop for dinner, right? Well, we were at a part of the road where there weren't a lot of restaurants, but we did see one. We'd never been to this uh, fast food restaurant before, but we thought, that sounds great. We'll try it. So we got into the drive through line, had uh, three cars ahead of us, and um, we got to order our hamburgers, and then we started sitting. And I don't know about you, but when I go to a fast food drive through I figure I'm going to wait, what, about five or ten minutes. Would you say that's fair? No, not, it's, it's a fast food restaurant drive through right? We sat there after ordering for five minutes, 10, 15, and about that time, I'm looking for a way to get out of the line. Can I go over that two-foot curb? No, I don't think, oh, there's bushes over there. We're stuck. 20 minutes later, we finally started moving toward the window, and we'd been talking with each other about what could be possibly wrong. Are they down to one employee? Which is oftentimes the case today, right, for different restaurants. There's a labor shortage. Are they celebrating the manager's birthday in a back room and there's nobody at the window? Have they run out of food and they're going to Vons for hamburgers? I don't know. We get to the window and I look in and everything's normal. So why were we waiting 20 minutes? And the reality was that if you're going to be a servant, you have to be present, which they were, but you have to be responsive to the needs of others. We never did find out why the service was so bad. Now, we're probably not going back to the same fast food restaurant because it was actually put it in park and wait restaurant. So they were present, but they weren't responsive. Jesus came into our world for the express purpose of serving us so that our greatest needs would be personally met. I love the way Hebrews describes this. Hebrews 4.14. You'll see it up on the screen. It says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, this is talking about the, the uh, end of his earthly existence as he is heading back to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Think about that for a second. 
He is not unable to sympathize with your struggles and mine. But we have one who has been tempted. The word in the New Testament is tested and tempted. Same word, context determines the the difference. He's been tempted, tested in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us approach then the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let's rewind that for just a second. He is not unable to sympathize with us. So Jesus is an individual who understands us. He relates to the pressures, the demands, the stresses of life. He deals with unrealistic expectations and the evil agendas of others. He understands what it's like to get through the drudgery of the routine, the failed friendships, the unkind comments, uh, and, and all the rest of it. But he didn't cave in to the testing and temptations that all of those presented I had one of my Bible teachers at Moody try to describe this for us, and I think he did a good job. He brought out a thin piece of wire. He said, this is like your ability to resist temptation. And then he started just manipulating it around. It's so easy for us to cave in to to the temptations and tests of life. And then he brought out a one-inch steel rod, about the same length. And he said, Jesus was also God as well as human, human. So he has this human nature, but he is also divine God. And then he began to compress the two together. And he said, imagine when Jesus was tested, how difficult would it be for Satan to bend that rod? He's got the human nature, he's got the divine nature together. The pressure it would require to bend that one-inch rod would be so much greater than to bend that thin piece of wire. The God-man was pressured far beyond what we could ever imagine for ourselves. And yet it says, he knew no sin. He knows the problems we face. He knows the struggles we endure. And he knows the answers to all of those things as well. How to get through it. When we grasp the magnitude of his service to us, the outcome is actually stunning. There's a young man by the name of Doug Nichols who learned firsthand what that kind of service meant. Doug was an individual who served in India with Operation Mobilization. And he had only lived there a short time before he got tuberculosis, and he was put in one of the government hospitals uh, for a couple of months. And as he's going into the hospital, he's got this a ragged cough and, and all of the side effects of tuberculosis. And he, he doesn't speak the language yet, but as he's going in, he figures, I want to share the gospel with people. So he brings a bunch of booklets with him in the local language. And as he meets patients and doctors and nurses, he's handing out the booklets. And everybody is politely refusing. It's okay. No, I don't need that. That's all right. Well, after the first few weeks, he woke up one morning at 2 o'clock in the morning coughing. And he looked across the aisle at another patient who was also awake. It was an older man, very frail from his illness, sitting on the edge of his bed, trying to get up and unable to do that. And he would fall back in bed and he began to weep. He was so tired and exhausted. He tried to stand and he couldn't and he fell back into bed and curled up and Doug heard him crying softly. Well, the next morning, 
the raw stench of urine and feces filled the ward. And Doug realized that that patient had been trying to get up to go to the bathroom. And the smell was stifling, and other patients were angry at the man and yelling at him, and the nurses are roughly turning him from side to side as they clean up the mess, and one of them even slapped him, and the old man fell back on his pillow, curled up into a ball, and wept. The next night, Doug woke up again, coughing, and he noticed the same thing happening. Here's this old man, thin as a rail, trying to stand up and get to the bathroom, and Doug thought to himself, this is not on my bucket list. To help a guy get out of his bed, go to a bathroom, and bring him back. And yet he does. He, go, he went over to the man and touched him on his shoulder. And the man flinched a little bit in fear and looked up. And Doug smiled at him and reached down and picked him up. He was very lightweight. Carried him over to the bathroom, just a hole in the floor. Puts his arms behind him as the man takes care of his business. Gets him cleaned up. Carries him back to his bed. Puts him in. Smiles and the man kissed him. One of the other patients, who was now awake, looked and smiled. The next morning, Doug woke up, and there was a patient offering him some hot tea and motioning at him for one of the books. He gave the book to the man. Other nurses and doctors came by and asked for the book. A week later, an evangelist from the area who spoke the language, he was uh, Indian, came by and started to share the gospel and found that, that a lot of people had already believed in Christ because of the book. And he was amazed. And the lesson Doug writes about this is that he realized what it took to make an impact on the people in the future. He realized it was not going to be curing their diseases or even the ability to speak the language or handing them some kind of message. What it took was a trip to the bathroom. And how difficult it must have been for God the Son to leave the splendor and glory of heaven and to come here and help carry us in the midst of our needs, in the midst of our struggles, dealing with our most pungent of sins, erasing our most fetid wrongdoings. He came to seek and to save us. And folks, I think that once we grasp that, it changes the way we think about Christmas. I think it changes the way we think about Christ, the Son of Man. But he would do that and come and offer not only hope of a relationship with God, but help for our greatest needs, our worst sins. So take a moment and pray with me, would you? Just bow your heads. Think of the worst sin you've ever committed. Now, for me, that's not difficult. David wrote, my sins are always before me. I think that's true for us. What is it that would be your most fetid, putrid sin? And tell yourself, Jesus came to seek me and to serve me and to take that sin and all the rest of my sins, remove them from me so I am no longer accountable for them by the grace and mercy of God, and cast them away, as he says, as far as the east is from the west, into the deepest sea, 
Remove them for us and remember them no more. How does that make you feel? What difference does that make for us? Because it's through Jesus Christ that all of our sins are covered. All of our sins are paid for and atoned for at the cross. And he stands before the Father in heaven and represents us as our advocate. Father, I paid for that sin. Father, they've asked me to confess or to forgive that sin. They've confessed it. And they are covered in the blood of Christ. And so, Father, we do thank you that in sending Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, among us, we do find hope, but we also find help with our greatest needs, our greatest struggles, our greatest difficulties, sins, and failures. And God, what a wonderful gift it is to have Jesus as the Son of Man. And lastly, Father, Jesus came to give us fresh hearts. He gives us fresh hearts. Look at Matthew 19, 28 through 30. It'll be on the screen. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the renewal of all things At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, speaking to the 12 apostles, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first." Folks, Jesus came as the Son of Man to include you and I in his kingdom. In fact, I love the way it's it's phrased here. It's at the renewal of all things. Remember the last new thing you bought? How much fun it was to use that, to look at that and think, man, this thing is not going to break for at least a week or two. It's new. What an amazing thing. And God says, I'm going to renew all things. But I think Jesus used this phrase, the Son of Man, in particular because of the kingdom of God. Look at Daniel chapter 7. I'd like to have you open your Bibles. Make sure you have them open to Daniel 7 for just a minute. We are going to put it on the screen, but because of time, I'm going to skip down a little bit to verse 13. So guys, if you can help me with that, let's go to verse 13. This is a scene in heaven where the Ancient of Days is calling out the future, and he talks about all the kingdoms of the world that are going to come, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, and Rome, and then he finally ends up in verse 13, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is that son of man. He has this kingdom that is coming at which all things will be renewed. And the question then became for the followers, well, how do we become a part of that kingdom? And Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he or she who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. When we combine these passages together, we see two elements for being a part of this kingdom that appear here, this time of renewal of all things. The first is to do the will of God in heaven. Okay, that's great. What is the will of God in heaven? The second is having a real love relationship with him. Those are the two criteria. Do the will of God in heaven. Have this love relationship with him. Only he who does the will of my father, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. So, what do we do with that? Well, John, Jesus' best friend, writes about it in 1 John 3, and he takes both of these things and brings them to a point of focus, and he says, this is God's command. Oh, thank you, John. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear that it can be crystallized. This is God's command, to believe in the name of his Son, Christ Jesus, and to love one another as he commands us. And notice he goes on to say, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. This is 2 Corinthians 13 from last week. To be in Christ and Christ in us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. All this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So what is his point? If we're going to be a part of this renewal of all things, there needs to be this belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and there needs to be this change of heart to love others, and to love God, to be in this love relationship so that when we stand before him, he says, oh, I know you. Yes, you believed in me. Enter into the kingdom of Christ. Let me end with this story. Rick Warren, who is the pastor of Saddleback Church, once told a story about Dan uh, Cathy, the president and CEO of Chick-fil-A, who is a very strong follower of Jesus Christ. He said that... um, Dan was in Southern California to check on some new Chick-fil-A's that were opening. And he called up Rick because one of them was close to Rick's church, and he said, hey, do you want to come along and let's just talk and talk about what God is doing in our lives and ministries? And so they went together to this Chick-fil-A under construction. And they, they poked around a bit, they talked to the crew, and, and when they finally finished, it was lunchtime. But Chick-fil-A is not open there, right? So Dan says, well, let's go get some Mexican. So they walked over to a local Taco Bell. Their hands are still dirty, so they went into the bathroom, and they're washing up their hands before the order at the counter. And something extraordinary happened in that moment that speaks of what Jesus has done for us and how he changes us. This CEO of a huge chain of popular restaurants dried his hands off and then grabbed about six more towels. And he started going from sink to sink. Getting that one clean, coming over to this one, cleaning this one up, coming over to the third one, he's cleaning that one up. And Rick said to him, Dan, you don't have to do that, they have a crew for that. And he said, Rick, we teach every one of our employees, whatever they're doing, wherever they are, to clean up and leave it in better condition than they found it. It's the right thing to do. And Rick Warren was stunned that this incredible, wealthy CEO would take the time to clean the sinks of a local Taco Bell restaurant. And the fun thing is, until Rick told this story, no one at that Taco Bell restaurant knew, and nobody at the Taco Bell corporate office knew, that one of the CEOs of their biggest competitor 
had cleaned their sinks for free. There's this internal change, folks, right? When we believe in Christ, it changes how we love other people, what we do. So in conclusion, we realize that when we think of Jesus as the Son of Man, this baby in Bethlehem, it's so much more than a child. He is the one who brings us hope to know him. He's the one who brings us help to serve us. And he's the one who gives us this fresh heart to ultimately change us and be life changers in our world today. And what a great way to begin to celebrate Christmas, right? What a great hope and joy to move forward with. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus came as a man and he dwelt among us. He experienced all of life and, and way beyond the struggles that we encounter. And yet, we find in him this sense of hope. We were lost, but now we're found. We find this opportunity for help to be served by the living God. And Father, we find the possibility of a fresh heart to believe in you, to love you, and to love others. So Father, at this Christmas season, may we continue in the footsteps of Jesus to celebrate the hope, the help, and the fresh hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.